Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. WTF, thanks for tuning in. How's everybody holding up? I want to say a special hello to my uh, Instagram live crew who hang out with me in the morning. I seem to uh, regularly, regularly, <laughs> it's like all my speech impediments in one thing except for the S's. I seem to regularly get on there in the morning and meander for nothing for the for for my own sanity for and for that for that uh the sanity of others i uh i do the uh instagram lives usually about an hour when i get on there and just kind of free form it answer questions it's been a lot of uh you know, a lot of good people there seems to be a community forming there uh around the uh the the sort of morning coffee business and i'm i'm good helps me helps me riff it out like I do here on this mic, but even more free on that mic. And it, yeah, I got to be careful. No editing on the IG. I don't got Brendan keeping things in check. So I got to keep my own self in check. But it's it's sort of serving the purpose of uh, you know getting me engaged uh, with my brain, which is generally how I generate ideas, material, things. And uh, it's helping me because, uh, you know, I'm not doing stand-up. So in the morning... I get up and do that business and, uh, you know, sparks new stuff. I don't understand the Farsi, Arabic, Russian troll onslaught. I don't know what's going on with that, but I do know there's a lot of, and just regular trolls, not too many, but mostly, uh, more than anything else, just uh, people looking for a little bit of relief, a little bit of distraction, not unlike you people listening to this. A guy I've known for a long time is on the show today, Hari Kondabolu. He's never been on for a one-on-one show, despite being on one of the very early live WTFs. You may know his stand-up from uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or from the the documentary The Problem with Apu, which he created. He's got a new stand-up special on Netflix and his podcast with W. Kamau Bell called Politically Reactive is now back on the air, back back in the uh, downloadable zone. But uh, he's a smart, funny guy. He's an intense guy. And he's a guy that I've known since he was a kid almost. I remember when Hari Kondabolu was coming around comedy clubs, sort of intense and seemingly aggravated, maybe a little sweaty when he was in college, trying to uh, figure out how to do stand-up before he did stand-up. 
And I talked to him about that, which was kind of interesting because I have very clear memories of this guy. And I and I think I feel like we were sort of he was sort of a kindred spirit in the sense that uh, he reminded me of me uh, at a different time. Just uh, intense, you know, angry, you know, looking for a way not to alienate people, but still kind of wanting to alienate people. Smart. But he figured it out. His new special is actually very good. I believe it's called Warn Your Relatives, but it's funny. It's smart. It's uh I think it was uh, shot in Seattle, which is one of my favorite places. But um, so I'll talk to Hari in a few minutes. And those of you who watch the IG Live know that uh, you know a lot of people have already bought these things, but we're selling these T-shirts. They're, they're the Too Close Marin T-shirts. Too Close, which has become sort of a, a hook of some kind. What, whatever the case, people are enjoying the T-shirts. All right. Um, I guess people are looking for reasons to get some merch while the days get shorter and our isolation persists. So you're in luck. Uh, we did some uh, a sort of a run of T-shirts with uh, some nice art on there of me. And you might remember that last year uh, we did a special edition line of posters to celebrate the first decade of WTF. So a couple months ago, we put out a special edition line of merch to celebrate the first 10 years of WTF. Artist Johnny Jones did some new designs for us, and we had some T-shirts, pins, and notebooks that are still available at podswag.com slash WTF. He also did a limited edition poster design that sold out very quickly. So we've got uh, two more of those, two more of the posters, and they're available now, all signed by me. There's only 100 each, so check them out, folks. We'll put some pictures on Twitter and Instagram as well. Go get this stuff at podswag.com slash WTF or go to WTFpod.com and click on the merch link for the new Too Close shirts and all the other stuff. All right. So I, if, if you know me, you know that I have a sort of love-hate relationship with food and myself. That's just my nature. I don't know if you can relate to that. Just That's just who I am. So... I generally take care of myself, but it's a it's a struggle with food because I like to eat things that are very satisfying. And if I could, I would eat cake and ice cream all day long every day. But I don't. And one of the issues with having an addictive personality and the physical nature of the effect of sugar and carbs on the fucking system is that when I put a little in there, it takes me like two or three weeks to pull back. Not that I'm going crazy and fucking shoveling pasta into my face, but uh, but I got the craving. I got the Jones. I got the I got the sugar monkey on my back. So somewhere after, you know, going through a few pints of ice cream that Pat and Oswald had sent to my house, I got a bug in my brain about this goddamn Kentucky butter cake. That's the other problem. If I if you got the if you follow New York Times cooking on fucking Instagram, you're getting pictures. You're getting pictures all day long of fucking food. There it was, Kentucky butter cake, some recipe from 1963, won a Pillsbury Award, and I'm like and it's in a bunt pan. I'm like, I got a bunt pan. I'm going to fucking make a Kentucky butter cake. No, I'm not. I'm alone here. I'm dealing with the weight of isolation, of quarantine, of plague, of the possibility of the complete economic and political collapse of the country I live in. We're being sort of driven into the ground by a narcissistic second tier demon. And now I got it on my brain. that I got to make a perfect Kentucky butter cake. So I'm going to do it. But I got no one to share it with, really. 
I got a couple friends come over. My buddy Kit. Maybe she'll have a fucking slice. But then what? What am I going to do? Drive it over to Sharplings? Am I going to drive it around? What am I going to do? So I went and got the supplies. I got the buttermilk. I got the butter. I got the sugar. I got the flour. I got the vanilla extract. And all I want to do is make this thing correctly, make this thing perfect, and then maybe have a slice and then get it out of my fucking house. It's really about the process, the meditation process of creating the cake, doing it correctly, looking at it, eating it, feeling the high of eating that piece of cake, fighting with the urge to eat the rest of the cake, and somehow getting it out of the fucking house, knowing that I succeeded, had the meditational therapy of cooking and the fucking buzz of eating a bunch of sugar and butter and flour and eggs. So I did it. I set out to do it and I fucked it up and it didn't go the way I wanted. The recipe wasn't specific enough about preparation. So I made the batter. I buttered the pan. I poured the batter in the pan. Fine. No prob. Put that in the oven cooked it the right amount of time then here's the idea with the kentucky butter cake that's just basically butter flour and sugar sponge in the pan and then you create this butter sugar syrup that you then pour over the cake that you've poked holes in so the cake soaks it up like a sponge and you let it sit for three hours and then you turn it over and get it out of that bunt pan so i pulled the cake out of the oven i poked the holes and i'm making the fucking butter syrup didn't put enough water in. They said, don't let the sugar dissolve all the way. So I, I thought it looked a little lumpy and I didn't have a good feeling about it, but I thought I had done it right. And I poured it over the bun cake and it wasn't, I didn't put enough water in it because I fucked up. I put two teaspoons in instead of three tablespoons. I don't know why. So now I know that I fucked the entire thing up in the last goddamn leg of the recipe. I fucked it all up. So now there's sugar is basically just a glaze sitting on what's supposed to be the bottom of the fucking cake. And I know it's going to be fine for what it is. Like, how is it not going to taste good? It's just butter and sugar and flour and eggs and buttermilk and vanilla. It's going to be fucking what it is, but it's not going to look like it's supposed to. It might not come out of the pan like it's supposed to. It might not. It just isn't right. Okay? It's not right. So now I'm beating myself up because I fucked it up. And I'm looking at this thing. It's supposed to sit for three hours. I'm looking at the glaze that's supposed to be syrup hardening on the top of what is the bottom of the cake. And I'm angry. And I'm just sitting there going, like, just throw it out, man. Throw the whole thing away. Throw it away. That's I even said it in that accent. Throw it away from Queens. Throw it away. What's the matter with you? But I sat in that for about an hour and a half. About half the time it's supposed to sit, and I went in, I tried to shake it out of the fucking mold, and I broke a plate trying to shake it out of the mold. And I got another plate, and I kept shaking. It wasn't coming out of the mold, so maybe the cake was fucked up too. Whatever the case, about half of the cake came out of the mold. The bottom half of what's... It's the top, but it's supposed to be the bottom half. So now I've got this broken cake with this hardening sugar glaze on it in pieces with the other half stuck in the fucking pan, and I'm fucking pissed, man. And I'm, I just take the pan over the garbage. I take out what's, what's left in the pan. I throw it in the garbage. I throw the pan in the sink. Now I'm looking at these fucking jagged, fucked up pieces of cake and glaze on this plate. And I just shovel them into my mouth. Probably two slices worth quickly. And I just, it's so fucking good. How could it not be? So I'm just chewing that angrily. 
angrily shoving this broken up piece of unsuccessful cake into my face. I throw the rest out. And the thing is, is that not only was I angry at myself for fucking up, but, you know, after I ate it, it was so good. I'd eaten just enough of my fucked up cake to feel shitty about eating it. Job well done. Shame intact. Went to bed just sweating butter, worried about diabetes, wondering if my heart was going to clog. And whose fault is this? You know whose fault it is. Fucking Donald Trump's. That's a lie. I can't hang that on him. This is not a political problem. I, I have to say at different points in my life, I've done the exact same thing as I did with that cake. But the, the catch is, is that usually I made the cake correctly, but the exact same steps unfold afterwards. All right. So my guest is Hari Kondabolu, a very intense, very smart, very funny man. His podcast, Politically Reactive, with Hari and uh, W. Kamau Bell is back with uh, new episodes every week. He also has a stand-up special on Netflix called Warn Your Relatives, very funny, shot in Seattle. And his documentary, The Problem with Apu, is now on HBO Max, uh, which was kind of, uh, it was informative for me. Maybe you'll enjoy it. So this is me talking to uh, Hari Kondabolu who I had a profound influence on when he was a younger man. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. And Kondabolu. How are you, buddy? I'm all right. How are you? Don't don't pretend like you don't know me. <laughs> no, seriously though, how are you? I'm all right. Yeah. What you mean with the with the thing? Of course. You know, today was not great, but it, it's been, it's getting easier, you know, it's getting easier, but it's, uh, you know, I don't cry as much in front of strangers or people I haven't seen in a while. Right. Um, right. I was surprised you went right back to work. Did you take some time off at all? I did not. Okay. I just found it to be fitting for what I do to, like, I really had to figure it out whether or yeah. not to, to live that thing publicly would it be helpful in any way to anybody? And uh, you're all right with the mic stand? What's? Yeah, yeah, I'm just adjusting it. It's funny because 
it's only been a few months since I've regularly used a mic stand, and I'm, I feel like I'm out of practice, which is very embarrassing. But but that does that's a bendy one. That's not the straight one, is it? No, no, it's a bendy one. It's one of those music. Yeah, those are. But those are those. No, no matter how good you are at stand up, the one thing you don't want to see when you get on stage is the bendy one. It it's. People don't get it, but it's just awkward. Also, it's if you wanted to use the mic stand, you can't anymore because you're all, fucked up. Yeah, it's gonna it's yeah. gonna do it's gonna do what it's doing to you right now, in the yeah, middle of your show. I don't really understand why do they why do musicians need this? What is the purpose of this? Why so do they, they can play they the guitar. The oh, so it's it's going to be next to the guitar? Is that the idea? It's not actually so for they vocals. They have room. No, they have room. Like it's so like if they're standing there with a guitar. It, oh, they can right. All right. What was I going on? Oh, what was I talking about? Oh, yes. I started working immediately because um, I, I just thought that was that was my relationship with my feelings. So I, I, I shared them and I think they were helpful to some people. You know how people, when they have tragedy, they say like, this is what they they would have wanted me to have done, especially athletes say that all the time. Like, you know, my grandmother would have wanted me to play. Did you yeah. ever have a thought like that? Like Lynn would have expected me to continue to to do what i do and not stop i don't know you know you know you're in an awful lot of shock so i i don't like i i just was i knew i was having these feelings that were profound and unlike anything i'd experienced before and i couldn't control them and 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 i think i was surprised at at that and and the sort of genuine I mean, like anybody would have had it, but like I don't think I'm one to acknowledge how deep my love is uh, when people are alive or or in general. Right. So I don't know that I thought about what she would have thought, but I tried to to uh, respect her, and I and I felt on some level, in retrospect, I, I think some there's like obviously she has family, she has people who have known her longer than me, and all this other stuff. And and I didn't want to be disrespectful for them either, but this is what I do. So I felt, right. like if if anything, on some level, it might have been a little jarring for the people that have known her all her life to have this new guy who none of them knew that well, you know, crying publicly. Oh, so it was it was a little tricky. But speaking like he, about what? Go ahead. What? We're gonna go ahead. Go ahead. No, you I, go. <laughs> Yeah, I just want so you were you were at that stage where you would have met all her closest people soon. Like it was that like right, right. that stage where this is a real thing. Right. I'm gonna be with this guy. Right. I want everyone I know to know him and love him. Like it was that stage. Right. It was before that. You know, it's like a little you know, we'd known each other a long time, but that hadn't really happened yeah. yet. I'd met her her parents in passing before they knew we were a thing. Right. And, uh, but no, I had to meet everybody, um, through, you know, telling them she was in the hospital. Uh, it's terrible. Yeah. But speaking about life and death, you look yeah. pretty well is, and I assume it's because you have a baby. <laughs> uh, I feel very tired. Thank you for saying I look very well. Um, yeah, I, I, I've, I'm incredibly, t- I've never been this happy and tired before how old the baby um, a month a month old yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, and, yeah. You, and you have a wife a partner yeah a partner not a wife yeah 
No, we're not married. Was the baby a surprise? The baby was a surprise. We love each other very much. We both want to be parents. Like a a child is a blessing, especially when you're in your mid to late 30s and you want a child. Yeah. Um, You know, if, if it wasn't a strong relationship, you know, with someone who like I imagined I wanted to be with almost from the moment I met her, like, you know, we this would this conversation wouldn't be happening. But like we felt good about that. And I think marriage was something that was on the horizon. And now all of a sudden it's like, what's more important right now? You know, like to me, having a child with someone in theory is actually the bigger bond, right? Because whether or not you're together, you always have this child. You always have to deal with each other. You're always in each other's life. And committing to that is so much bigger. Sure. But, uh, but it adds a little extra oomph when it's harder to leave. (laughs) <laughs> uh i don't know man i mean i know enough I people do. who like get get i mean I, but you you don't have kids though you've never been in the situation of wanting oh, you know but, wanting dude, to i have seen like you know it's like the the the, the beautiful thing that you said just then about yeah. commitment revolving around this new life that you will you will always have to be in each other's lives because of the children i've heard that said with such bile uh, in my life, <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm certainly not saying it with bile. I'm saying it. No, no, know, I'm just. A, I'm talking about. I'm, thing. I'm talking about guys in the middle of a divorce, buddy. I'm talking right. like it's like I gotta fucking see that bitch, all right? Because we got the kid, and I gotta figure out how to get time with the kid now. So I gotta say these things. I gotta give this money. There's a different. There's a different yeah. tone. Exactly what you said. Right. Uh, I mean, to me, it's like, well, this kid, you know, is going to have two loving parents regardless of what happens. And that's that's you, how you I'm hope, viewing it. And Well, I think yeah. that's probably true with you. But you can only hope. I'm older than you and I've seen some bad shit. But I right. have faith in you. Well, I mean, I'm 38. I've seen some bad shit, Mark. It's not, you Yeah, know. but you, you know, you got better friends than I did. You know, yeah, you, <laughs> see, you seem like a little more well-adjusted. You do. I think he turned out better than me. I'm talking uh, to you like you're my brother. I, I still remember that that night I met you when you were kind of intense and angry and sweaty and yeah. panicked. And panicked that, and was, I, that was years like 14 to 32, I But think. I know we've talked about yeah. this before. I think we talked about it the one time that I, we talked on the show, but it, so it doesn't matter. But, but I just remember, and I want to sort of clear some stuff up because I, I feel like for some reason when I see you, and I'm yeah. watching the stand-up. Like, yeah. I, I always know we knew each other, and I always knew that I was one of the first people you talked to about stand-up when, before yeah. you really started doing it. But then I always I, I always felt that there was a slight bit of tension between us. Um, That's true with everyone you know, isn't it? <laughs> like, you're making it sound like this is unique to me. Yes, I'm a person you've met. No, I'm a person that's known you for no, over a, a year. It's yeah, not tr- that's not true. It's not true. Th- there, there, there is. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there is. I think, well, one, the power dynamic initially as, like, when I first spoke to you, I think I was 19 or 20 years old. I was Weren't a college student. Weren't you a graduate student? student? Yeah, you're a college No, no, student. I was a college. I was, I was a junior. I went to Bowdoin College, but I spent my study abroad year in Connecticut at Wesleyan University where I took uh, this pop culture class, and I used that as an excuse to write a paper about stand-up comedy. Oh, right. That's right. You were writing a paper. Yeah. Which is a stupid 
essay people are still writing today. But anyway, so I used that as an excuse to contact comics from their web pages because it was that easy back then in 2003. I just emailed you from your web page. And now it's even easier. (laughs) You just have to... Tweet at somebody something offensive, and you there's an eighty percent chance they'll respond. So I I interviewed you and Doug yeah. Stanhope, and I, I went to the cellar and interviewed like Greg Giraldo and Hood and uh, Jim Norton and Tom Papa. Like, it was a whole uh, Ted Alexandro. Like there was a ton of people, and um, we we spoke initially on the phone, and like I was. I just I still have tapes of our phone call. You like, do, yeah, yeah, yeah. In my parents' place, it's on old cassette tape. I, you know, I, I haven't listened to them in years. I remember, like, obviously, you and I in very different places back then. Like, I'm a kid, really desperately wanting to do stand up, but being too afraid to, and using yeah. this as an excuse, this academic exercise, as an excuse to talk to real comics to understand what this business was. Try to get some and, courage, right? Exactly, and. You were at a stage where you were unhappy with where your career was. You, <laughs> I remember you getting really upset. I don't seemingly out of nowhere, and you mentioned Dane Cook, and I'm like, I don't know why people like that guy. I, I don't understand that. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't get why I don't, I can't fill a room. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, you know, I'm 19 or 20. I'm like, I like you. I, I don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> it was like a terrifying turn how, of events. Um, how can I help this man? Yeah, it's like this is a this is a grown man telling me how things didn't work out, and I'm trying to convince myself to do stand up. <laughs> and it's like you're warning me, and I did not pay attention when I should have. You were warning me, don't let this happen to you. Did it happen to you? It didn't happen to you. What? You didn't get bitter and mean and awful. Oh yeah, I guess you kind of. I don't think you I made ever it work got, for you. I don't think I ever got bitter or mean or awful, but I, I certainly um, wanted to stop a few times. Uh, you know what it was? I think this is why I, I think that probably if there was any stress or. But I want to hear about when because I remember sitting down with you at the cellar, and that and was the you, second time. Yeah, but you were making me. You, you almost made me nervous because you were so intense and so filled with this sort of strange what I thought was like defensive, angry energy, but huh, you were just yeah. un- you were just uncomfortable with everything th- about yourself. Yeah. Well, I was again, 19, 20, 21, you know, I, I loved stand up so much and it was the only art form I could see myself doing. And I had done it through college and in high school and I just loved it so much. I was uncomfortable and I was thinking about is stand up a place for me. And I also like, you know, I would go down to the, the cellar, you know, when I was 18, 19, 20, because back then you, the cellar was desperately looking for people to fill the seats during the weekday. So you could, you could get this coupon online, you'd get two sodas and that's all you had to pay. And you could watch comedy on a Monday or a Tuesday all for night. free. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was incredible. Um, and so I used to go to those shows where people were working stuff out and, and all that and i would also see uh, there was a certain there was like y'all were a little more hardened than i you know you were a club comedy you were working clubs it was like patrice and jim norton and voss and all these comics and robert kelly and uh, i'm seeing like people work in the crowd and and it's rough nick DiPaolo. and i'm thinking (laughs) oh i can't i can't do this (laughs) i'm not built like that i'm not built like that those guys and and to this day by the way it's you know i still haven't played the cellar 
still too afraid to do it. I, I, I feel like I've gotten to do all these incredible things I'm proud of, and that's the one thing, the one thing, because oh it was my child. Oh, my God. And I know Chris Rock said he would vouch. Like, I had different people say they'd vouch, and I'm like, ah, it's all right. I've opened for Chris on the road in, in, in the U.S. and Europe, and the thing I'm afraid of is playing the seller. Dude, I you know, I, I don't... I, I was, I'm still afraid of it. I, I play it, really? but you don't know what's going to happen. There are guys that fucking live there. You get to a point, the, the thing about the cellar is not unlike the comedy store, original room, is that for some reason, if you show any real uh, fear in those rooms, yeah. you, you will fail. And yeah, it will yeah, be, oh, yeah, yeah. and it'll be, it'll be hard. That's unforgiving. You can't, you know, you can't be open ended about things. You have to yes. have a complete comfort about being on that stage, or else yeah. it will crush you, and yes. and you will feel it. So, well, I it, think that's also why I, you know, your stand up in particular at that time really hit me because I'd watch, you know, all these incredible comics, but you were different because you allowed yourself to be vulnerable, and I remember just thinking like. On this stage in particular, it, it stood out. It was so different. It wasn't jokes. It wasn't right. just jokes and stories. It was like you were talking about painful things. You were making people uncomfortable by being so open and honest. And, you know, some sh- sh- sets were amazing and some sets, you know, you were clearly working stuff out. But, like, <laughs> the fact you would, like, I had never uh, really seen that before. I used to make those, I used to make my peers leave the room. <laughs> i'd be like atel get out of here i'm let me try to do this please can i do it without you sitting there you've been what <laughs> it's so funny to me because like you know you were playing that and you were playing like luna lounge like yeah, you well, were that was i was at the cusp of what you know what i think you ultimately created you you know like there I... was this there you, you know there was those places enabled me uh, room to sort of take chances and work out in a yes. way that you couldn't at the comedy store because you had you know Manny walking into the room and panicking and looking around and looking at you and seeing if they were laughing and Esty would be like I don't know and you're like oh fuck you know it's so like, <laughs> and then I could just go to Luna Lounge with all that oh fuck energy and just blow it out yeah 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 but it was weird because we were all a lot of the people that were over there that started that were were club comics but. But then that world became, uh, you know, not this alternative world, but an an alternate option. Yes, yes. I mean, I certainly think that that space was definitely more conducive to to what I do now. But you know, I I started really seriously in Seattle, and I was doing the clubs there, and I was the underground you know, and shit. You were living in yeah, Seattle. Yeah, I mean, after I, I graduated from college, I tried to do it in new york but i was like 21 and i'm like i don't know so i went to seattle to be an immigrant rights organizer that's that's actually what i'd planned to be and i worked at an organization where the executive director was pramila jayapal who's a congresswoman now from from seattle and she was my mentor and i did stand up at night at the underground and like the the growing alt scene there and it was a hobby and so i just kind of developed it there and it kind of took off but yeah the the Seattle is still the city that like I will go to the most. The original underground with old Ron down there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I, did they move? Oh yes, the original underground. That's right, with the little bullpen in the back, basically where the comics would wait and they go up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the the stinky downstairs underneath that other bar. Right where you could see some of the original Pike Place Market uh, before the city had burnt Pioneer down. Pioneer Square. Like, Pioneer Square. Century ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I loved that club. My guy. I mean, that's. I mean, between that was a great that place. And, it was a great place. I mean, that you. It's not quite a road room, but you know, when a, a rough late you know, Friday show anywhere is still a rough late but Friday it was show like, anywhere. But it was so. a great basement, low ceiling. Yes, perfect. I mean, great. I mean, it was a great place to develop. Certainly. So, like, I think that and um, the the alt scene there, and then, you know, I, I kind of stem from there. But I still like I'll rent a little fifty seat theater in seattle and work out my material there like i'll do an hour of stuff mostly new and just like do uh i'll find a way to work it out kind of the way the british comics would do with with edinburgh like they do all these london preview shows before and they beat themselves up to get ready yeah sure and i got i got that out of san francisco when i went out there too i mean i've de- right. I, I developed in a lot of different places but i don't think i knew about that so you went to college so comedy was not the thing what you no. you know you were focused on on uh, immigration rights and yeah i mean i'm i'm one of those i think young brown people that came of age post 9-11 and was politicized by it and so you know i think that i was motivated from 18 19 20 on by like trying to make the world better whether you know that's human rights broadly or specifically in immigrant rights because post 9-11 with all these hate crimes and detentions and deportations and all, you know, I think people like they talk about how bad Trump is. I think people forget those years right after 9-11 when everyone was pretending the country was united. A lot of people were scared to death constantly. Yeah. It was like being doubly traumatized because you're scared of our terrorists, you know, going to bomb something again. Or is another plane going to hit? And I'm a New Yorker. So that's scary. Plus, are my fellow Americans going to beat the shit out of me for no reason? So. Right. Like, I think that very much drove the kind of work I wanted to do. Like, I wanted to support, like, communities of color. And I still did stand-up, and I loved stand-up. But this was, like, 2001, 2002. Like, there were no brown stand-ups that were making it, you know? So, like, and how much of your act really, like, at that time... Because, like, I, like, how much of your act are you ashamed of now? Oh, from when I was 18, 19, 20, like, almost all of it. <laughs> yeah. I was a kid. I had no right, life experiences. Uh, I know, the only, like, the only you... thing I was thinking about is make people laugh. They're laughing. I did a good job. Yeah. And and that's it. And and I knew that like an Indian accent was funny because the Simpsons proved that to us. And I'm like, ah, this makes the people laugh. If I do the funny voice, I'll do the funny voice. The jokes were well structured, well written, but they were empty. Like they didn't really say anything. But did you lean on? Did you self mock? Did you mock your? Were you culturally self-mocking? Yeah, I think so. Now, not the not the worst case scenario of right, that, right, right. but certainly I knew that I had that in my back my, pocket. I guess my question is, like, after watching uh, the problem with Apu, is because um, it's curious to me how we we learn about things, and and there's always room to learn about things, and I learned from watching that documentary uh, some things. And there are things that, that we know as comics and we tolerate as comics that you eventually have to question. And that continues to happen. Sure. But I, I just wonder, because I think some of the more interesting stuff in that, in that, in, in, in moments of that documentary is how the other incorporates their otherness into accepting the dominant paradigm's view of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah so, yeah. so. Like when you were younger, it was like you already knew what you wanted to do with your life and what fight you wanted to fight for for people of color. Yet you couldn't quite see. You had a slight blindside as to how you were stereotyping yourself, or you just lived with it. Well, I mean, first of all, I was doing stand up before I ever started 
thinking about the world because the first right. time I did stand up, I was 17 in high school on my high school stage, and I did yeah. it through college. And so to me, it's like that came first, right? And so this I, uh, political awakening happens after, and. Right. You know, so at that point, the idea of like, oh, you can say something with your stand up and have meaning and make people uncomfortable and you can still be funny. Yeah, that was a a lesson. I mean, I probably learned that lesson a little bit from from you, from David Cross's uh, double album, Shut Up, You Fucking Baby. Yeah. Which is also the reason I started cursing so much. And um, Paul Mooney. Sure. Like I saw Paul Mooney do stand up in Washington, D.C. in 2003. That's a long show. Oh my God! The <laughs> servers were so angry. The wait staff was furious. I, I middled for him in Sacramento once. Oh my God! It, it was you middled for for Mooney. How what was that like? Well, yeah, I learned an important lesson about racism. <laughs> that's, but it's not that's, the one you would think. It, <laughs> it, it, the lesson I learned from Paul about racism, because of the nature of how he keeps um, antagonizing uh, white people. Yeah, he you know, really does. Right. But like, and you know, like in a place like Sacramento, it's mostly a white audience. So if you go in there thinking you're not racist, by hour two, he'll find it in. (laughs) (laughs) I love it though. I love the fact. No, it's genius. It's, uh, you know, obviously in DC, it was a mostly black crowd, some people of color, and you have white people walking out. To be fair, some white people walked out because it was entering the third hour uh, of his set. But like, for me, it was incredibly cathartic because I didn't know that you could make an audience uncomfortable and yet I'd never laughed harder before. Like the idea that something could be for me right. was was new. Like this, and I'm, I'm an Indian dude. I'm not even a black dude. Like as an Indian person, this was the closest we got. I'm like, oh, this, this doesn't need to be for white people because everything else was meant for white people and then you have to interpret their experience and compare it to yours to be able to you know, because if I'm like, well, I'm not going to watch this white shit. What am I growing up watching? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you ha- you have to, everything is made for white people, and you translate it so it fits in your life because you're an American, you're born here. He he made something for people of color, black people specifically. Yeah. But it was like this is fucking great. You can say what you want. Not everyone's going to like it, but who gives a shit? It makes it better. No, right. I, and I think that the point about some of the more mind blowing things that you, you know I had to reckon with as somebody who, who claims not to be racist, but accepts a certain amount of, of white privilege, obviously, because it's where I come from as a Jew white guy. But just the lack of representation culturally, I don't think I ever really thought that through until relatively recently. Sure. But like, you know, when I was watching the Apu doc, I was like, I never watched The Simpsons. I never watched them. So I have no point of reference with Apu. Sure. And I don't really have a point of reference I, you know, I, I, with convenience store. I was, well, my association with Indian people has always been at restaurants and it's, it's right. a very Indian restaurants. And then sure. I, and it was always with reverence, you know, like, it, like for years, I just, I would, I taught, I said it to Mindy Kaling, who I think I offended just, you know, dramatically, but I was <laughs> like, you know, I just want to go to India because they have such great food, you know, like, but I don't, I don't know anything else about the culture. Right, but right, right. It's not a stereotype. I feel like the, the most important takeaway from that documentary is that, one, people should have the right to represent themselves. Yeah. Uh, two, I think more representations are always better because also I think you get better stories. You know, there's something that accent and that character is hacky. It was hacky back then. I think I read a Simpsons interview where they were saying that when that character was created, we already knew that was a was a stereotype and a cliche. So we didn't want to do it until, you know, Hank Azaria did the voice and we started laughing. And no, so, the oh, Indian, yeah, yeah the this. Indian voice has been around forever. 
I mean, but the thing is, like, you know, the thing about any kind of racism or a lot of these, like, simple racial jokes is they're, like, they're hacky. Like, just creatively, they anyone can do them. They're not particularly clever. And so... Why didn't you talk to Jerry Bednob? Oh, God, Jerry Bednob. <laughs> like, I mean, that that's... But to be fair, Jerry Bednob, that's, like, the proto... Like, he's way back. That's, like... Would he have been the first brown South Asian comic? Uh, Probably, right? Maybe, yeah. Maybe he would have been. I can't, because then, you know, I'm thinking after that, it would have been like Russell Peters and Aladdin Ullah and all these other folks, of Vijay Nathan, but like he would have been well before that. Yeah, he's yeah. he's not like ancient, but he's you but know. That's but that's the first wave. You know, 70s, that's always maybe the first 70s. wave. Yeah, it's like, like Pat like, Morita's stand up. Like if you've seen Pat Morita was a great stand up, but like right. he used he used to call himself the hip nip. I mean, that was his sure his thing. You know, the stuff was very stereotypical. There's also, I think, a difference between playing to your own and playing to a mass audience too like yeah. you know russell does lots of accents russell peters and he and he certainly he's he's certainly a groundbreaking south asian comic and i think a lot of us owe him something for what he's done but like you know people are very critical like oh he does so many accents but if you look at his crowds like they're mostly south asian and asian he's basically opened stand-up markets around the world people have d- started doing stand-up because they saw him perform in dubai or india or wherever like well i think that the, the it's it, what's interesting about him is that he kind of covers the expanse of the non-african-american brown experience somehow that's very interesting yeah that yeah. that his audiences are yeah. are diverse within the spectrum of brown non African American. Yes, that's I think that's very true, and that and and, and he's global also, right? For right. that reason, I mean, and there's lots of comics like that. Like they have really important cultural roles, like Rex Navarrete. Like he has, you know, to a lot of Filipino folks, he's their guy. Yeah, you know, like well, yeah. There's, there's a lot of guys. I think one of the great punchlines in your last special was the Mango Podcast punchline. So like oh, yeah. said, you don't think anyone will listen to that? How about a billion people? <laughs> Which I thought like, then I felt like he's probably right. I mean, he's probably right. Do you know who doesn't agree is everybody I've pitched that idea to in the podcast world? Like, they're totally wrong. It would be so huge. You would just people have to, intri- would- you'd have to somehow introduce it into that market. And people really underestimate the, the sort of like loyalty and need to support their own. Yes. There's not enough of us at this point to like, I mean, there's enough of us now where we can hate Bobby Jindal and Nikki Haley, right? Yeah. But there's not enough of us where like, uh, you know, I completely hate Hari Kundabolu. It's like, eh, he's, he's he's annoying and he complains too much, but yeah. good for him. Like, there's still like that. But that's interesting. You know? How, but you, what is that politically? You know, because how do you, I mean, because politically you are of a certain ilk, you are uh, uh, progressive, and uh, outspoken leftist even and you know when you see someone like nikki haley or like bobby jindal do you do you see that as fundamentally toming in a way because that you know their approach to the american experience is something it's extreme in the other direction um that's that's a good question first of all i'll say regarding my leftism i think it's taken a hit since i had the baby uh, there's something about a baby that turns you into a capitalist so quickly. Uh, yeah. So uh, that let, let me start there. It's okay. Uh, it's okay to you can like money. And then the second thing, um, to a degree, I think that we all have different ways to deal with being an outsider in a mm. place, and 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 
what fitting in looks like. Yeah. And, you know, and, and for some people, it's like, do whatever it takes to succeed, you know, assimilate as yeah. opposed to it. Like, I'm about integration, but I also grew up in New York City. So that place is everything all at once constantly it's constantly changing there's always a bunch of different languages there's always a bunch of different cuisines you might not know everything about your friend but you are familiar enough because you went to school together like like they grew up with south carolina north carolina like whatever they the, the louisiana like i'm assuming their experience was very different but i also think you know once they realize okay this is also something that uh First of all, I've assimilated into this culture. These are some of the mainstream beliefs, and this is the easier stance to take, or this is the stance I've I've learned to take from growing up here. Like they've kind of run with it, and to me, it's not completely genuine. I know Bobby Jindal like certainly hit up South Asian like like Hindu temples and other South Asian centers for money when he was running. So as right. much as he can pl- say, like, I don't play race, it's not about race. It's like, well, when you needed the money, you certainly were into it. Well, it's interesting. I wonder what they're like, because like, I, you know, that whole second generation, you know, with a vengeance American kind of thing. Yeah. You know, that there's a like, I would assume there's a desire to pass, but there's also a desire to overcompensate, you know, uh, in 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 terms of like strange jingoism. To uh, c- to command respect from the people that would have usually hated you. I think there there's some there's some of that, but there's also like you know my whole. It, to me, it, it kind of comes down like at a certain point in, in South Asian American political circles, there's Dinesh D'Souza and there's Vijay Prashad. All right, mm. Dinesh D'Souza worked for Reagan. He's saying stuff about like. Indian cultural superiority and talking about black inferiority and how right. it's cultural and all that. And he's just, just playing into this whole model minority thing. And you have like Vijay Prashad, who is a Marxist, who's like, who wrote the book, The Karma of Brown Folk, playing off of W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, right. who is saying that while Du Bois asked like, you know, why are black people posed as the problem of America? You yeah. know, you know, Prashad saying Asians and South Asians are seen as the solution to the black problem. Like the ultimate sin of slavery, all of a sudden you push that aside and say, well, it's black people's fault because we have these other dark-skinned people, these other people who aren't white, who are succeeding. So so there's something wrong with you. And there's, you know, he's America's been able to use that racial triangulation to consistently keep us as non-black minorities, as outsiders, while keeping black people as inferior, but still American. And so, God, I... God, that uh, while I'm saying that, I'm like, God, damn, I'm in the wrong profession. That is a waste of an education. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, it, 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 but but also that triangle lets white people off the hook somehow. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, but no, but but I mean to segue from that idea that you know that your education or what interests you or or what causes motivates you, you know you you know what you do and what I've struggled with at times more so at different times but in my last two specials a little more than the the one before that is integrating these ideas into comedy that people can understand i mean your tracy morgan joke on the last special about him telling you you know you're too smart and you know what would be hilarious is if a guy that looked like you and sounded like you said you know yeah i was licking my girlfriend's asshole or whatever which he's right by the way objectively that that would be effective that no, but, you, but we do yeah. it. You do it. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you're the smart guy, but, you know, you you also, your appreciation for the comics that you appreciate enable you, 
you know, to be filthy, you know, in a moment that in, and in a selective way that right. that doesn't that you're not a filthy comic, but you know how to use the device confidently, even though yeah. you even though you you call yourself out on it, which bothered me. But like, you know, you can. <laughs> why, did, why did it bother you? It's a little bit of a wuss move, I thought. You know, just jerk off. You're okay. You can just jerk off. Just jerk oh, off. Are you, you kidding me? I to me that wasn't a wuss move. That's me, like, because you know I'm a huge, the biggest comedic influence in my life outside of Margaret Cho that made me want to do stand up when I was 15, and Paul Mooney who told me that like who showed me that you can make people uncomfortable is Stuart Lee. Right. Like a fuck, I'm obsessed with Stuart Lee. Well, that's stuff. right. I remember that. Yeah, I remember I, you being. Re- obsessed remember, with I'm Stuart. the one who kept telling you you should interview Stuart Lee, and, and I, I gave you all to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I got you. I you remember you emailed me, and I gave you all this like info on him yeah, yeah, and like yeah, clips yeah. to listen to. Like I'm such a huge fan of, of him and his ethos, and like I mean, he's one of those guys who's like, oh, there are no rules. Like whenever comics, like when people were going after Hannah Gatsby yeah. and saying it's not stand up, it doesn't count as stand up, and it's like. Where does this this purest nature of stand-up come from when it's like it's the lowest production values? It's a person, a microphone. It can be anything you want it to be. I know I've known comics who've performed on pool tables and well, without I think, I, yeah, mics. No, like, I, yeah, I've no done rules. that. Sure. No, but I think that came with you know that that it, ultimately what happened with alt comedy and the sort of I think the produced show movement. And then with TED Talks is that comics felt like they were losing turf that, you know, we paid our dues in this particular context and now there are these infiltrators. So I I think it comes the purest mode comes from the old idea of dues paying and club work. And and then, you know, they sort of judge on those lines. I think it's that simple. That that doesn't work anymore. Of course. Especially like you know, you, you people are complaining that. That said, though, I did pay my dues, and uh, you, you did pay your dues. Yes, <laughs> I, I have audio uh, evidence of you <laughs> yeah. talking about paying your dues, actually, and well, how Dane Cook back, had not. Yeah. And I was only halfway through the dues. <laughs> I hadn't even hit the hard part of the dues when you talked to me. But what I'm saying is that you do honor your education by doing the kind of shit that you do. And at what point did you realize you could do that? What joke? was the turning point for you where you realize like this is a political joke it's effective it 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 makes people look at what what they take for granted differently and yeah. uh, it opened a window cuz usually you know there's, which there's, moment there's two bits one of them was this joke about um the kohinoor diamond which is the diamond that the british stole from india and the probably the 1700s maybe right um and how it's on it's like one of the british crown jewels and it's on you know it's on one of their crowns and uh it was a bit about like reading um i haven't done it in forever but like uh, a museum exhibit that says that it was uh found in india in the 1700s like yeah it was found there it wasn't taken from india it was found because we we were just eating them we didn't know what they were (laughs) You know, we were making diamond biryani till the British showed up, and uh-huh. and they taught us how to use our opposable thumbs, and they took those diamonds away. So there's there was a bit I did about that that was like, okay, this is about colonialism. It has a bit of anger, which I think I had to learn gradually that anger was the place that I guess my comedy comes from the most. You know, I think and that's I why I think that's why you and I might have had tension, and what I saw in you that I related to and resented, or that I think we there's a the thing we had of, in common. In. Yeah, I think you and Lewis Black, especially Lewis Black, because he Lewis Black screams. Um, yeah, I but think, but, but he's cartoon like. He's figured out how to do it. 
Right, right, right. But I definitely think that re- release of anger and frustration as funny, I think you definitely were, you know, influenced me, particularly that first record, which I listened to obsessively. Like I love, was uh, not sold out, right? Oh, the 9-11 record? That yeah, one right yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, where, where you, oh, I remember you opened by talking about how you had a cold sore. Yes, that's uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's not sold out. And that has the bit about thinking that the FBI is watching me, that I want to see my file. Yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite joke on it. Where you, yeah. uh, <laughs> right. where you, nope, he's napping, like, masturbating again. Now yeah. he's sleeping, crying now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> crying for no reason. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, there's a few bits on, I think the bit on there that. I think for me had the most impact and for a lot of awful reasons, but was the one where you talk about suicide and where you say, have you ever gotten so depressed how you think about um, suicide, not because you actually want to do it. It makes me, oh yeah, makes you feel better. Yeah. I mean, just, I, you know, it's just, like I still kind of talk about that joke. Like I don't want to do it, but it just, it, it's, it just makes me feel better knowing I can if I have to. Yeah. Oh, that that thing stayed in my psyche probably way too long uh, because I think it's still in mine. I mean, it's, I mean, there is a part of me I will say before the, before the kid that saw the end of the world in the same way, right? Like like a nuclear annihilation or this thing. Oh, thank God, this whole thing's over. Like yeah. there's that relief in the same it, way as it's an gonna individual be quick for everybody. Oh, thank God, we're finally in. Like we're all in it together for the first time. Yeah, we're done. Uh, which all of a sudden feels different having a kid. It's like, uh, well, I want him to at least experience yeah. something. I but. want him to at least experience a horrible authoritarian racist culture that he's going to be growing up <laughs> in. <laughs> and ice cream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so the first kind of aware bits were about colonialism, which oddly to me yes, was something I didn't even take, I like only recently took into consideration because of a trip to London where yeah. where I realized like that... The, the people of color experience in Europe is completely different than America, but I was not educated yes. that way. But I went to an art exhibit at the gallery, I can't remember which, the Hayward, and, I, okay. and, I, and it was all a, a reflection on colonialism. And, yes. and all of a sudden my mind just blew about that. Like I'm still, I'm a 57-year-old man who's relatively progressive and fairly open-minded, but I never really kind of absorbed the idea and result of colonialism properly because I didn't grow up in it and I didn't study it. I mean, my parents speak English. Do you know what I mean? And it, it, there's like English is still one of the official languages of India. Right. Like it's 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 also the administrative language in addition to Hindi. So you know, yeah, I mean, like, it's certainly, it, it's very strange being in a colonized country coming from, like, whose family came from a place that was colonized. There's something weird about, like, we got them to leave, and now we're going to another place they went and they took over. I mean, we're all contributing, like, look, I'm benefiting from it, too, by by being here and living off this land. I'm also, like, the... You know, I have caste privileges, you know, like a lot of this, like the Indian people that are in this country, you know, they came from upper classes, especially that first wave with visas. I mean, you know, they were brought to this country, you know, with educations to get more educations to support the U.S. economy. And they come from upper upper caste backgrounds. How'd your, how'd your parents come? My dad, uh, my dad's sister, my aunt, um, came i think she's a she's a nurse so her and her husband who's a doctor came moved to kansas then brought uh my uncle and my dad uh and sponsored them and then my dad eventually moves to new york from kansas um, 
from Kansas. He spent his huh. first year in Independence, Kansas, huh. which is a very small town, uh, where he was once asked if he was Chinese because nobody knew what to, to, to make of him. Um, but then he, he moves to New York, lives with some friends there, and then eventually my mom and him got married, an, an arranged marriage in 81, and then my mom comes over. So it was, it was arranged back home. Back home, yeah. My mom, you know, it was interesting because my mom, I mean, I think it speaks a lot to my mom's really unique experience is that like she was a doctor as a South Indian, which is very conservative, South Indian woman in her like late 20s with her own practice. Like my, she never learned to cook. She never did, had to do any of the domestic things that a lot of young Indian women, especially of that time, are taught to do and how marriage is ultimately the goal. My mom had her own thing, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like she, she's, she's told me, like, I love you and your brother, but if I never got married, I'd be fine being a spinster reading books for the rest of my life. Like, that would right. have been fine, too. So, you know, I think she actually, you know, took the, the, the biggest hit. Like, to me, both my parents' stories are really interesting, but I think my mom's sacrifice to me, that's like the real the real story. If she wanted to be a doctor here, she would have had to go to medical school again. She would have had. She had to take an exam, and it wouldn't have been automatic. It didn't automatically transfer over. I don't know what the rules are now. And between raising two kids and my dad, so technically three kids, uh, it, it was it was difficult. You know, well, like, you know I think. Yeah, your dad gets sort of a, like he takes a couple hits in the special too, and my parents always take hits. But like, what? Well, having seen. Like the idea of an arranged marriage, I think to me and to a lot of people is sort of like, well, that sounds horrendous. And how do you remain committed to that you know, when they didn't have to do that in this country? Right. Um, I mean, it, it, one, I think that it's not always terrible. You know, there's enough stories of arranged marriages uh, that work out and it's a lifetime of I learned to love someone and this is an incredible partnership I've shared with some person. There's also, this is a terrible marriage and thank God I got out. And then there's the, I'm in it because of the social and societal pressure to stay. And at a certain point, you have to accept that they were figuring things out too. And I think my dad certainly like was falling in line with what he expected, you know, a wife to be. And my mom, you know, was falling in line with what she was told that she had to be. Um, but secretly is, she, she knew otherwise. And, uh, and eventually, my mom's a br- you know, my mom's a brilliant woman. Yeah. She again, had her own practice in, in, you know, in a, a small town in Andhra Pradesh, Southern India, like her life was so different than the life she's lived in 40 plus years since yeah. and 40 years since. So, you know, I, I think that like there's lots of stories and I, and I think a lot of women have these stories, you know, it's not just South Asian women. It's not just Indian women. There's a lot of women that have stories of like expectations ruining uh, or affecting the course they were on and changing, you know, what they expected. There's a of lot course. of tragic stories of like that, you know, yeah, there's yeah, a my, ton yeah. of women. They all have them. That. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we yeah. certainly have our share and, you know, I think my mom certainly uh, is in- incredibly forward-thinking and thoughtful, brilliant woman, and is beloved by people who meet her. Uh, and at the same time, I think she's this idea of duty and what is your duty as a woman. You know, that stuff's ingrained, man. That doesn't go away. Wired you know, in. That's, and that's not again. I just want to reinforce. That's not just 
various Indian cultures. I mean, that's everywhere. And that's just how it looks in our scenario in in our context. So is your brother still in the band? No, that band broke up uh, eight years ago. What's he doing? A lot of things. He's been, uh, he has a, I think he sold something to Spotify. He has like. The band was Das Racist? Das Racist. Yeah, he was the hype man Dapwell. Yeah. Yeah. But he's still in the music racket? Nah, not really. I mean, he DJs a show called Chillin' Island and he like does his own thing, but it's not, nah, he doesn't act, he doesn't play music. He never played music, you know? Right. It sounds like he's still in the area. Yeah, we're developing our own things together and we're pitching things together. Are you? Yeah, which is always like a dream thing. Like I've always wanted to work with my brother. He's my best friend and he's definitely the the smartest and most creative person I know. So that's nice. Yeah. No, I think we, as a team, have always been kind of, yeah. I think, I think the other thing I'm trying, I keep trying to figure out like what it is ab- about, you know, our dynamic, me and you. It's also the thing of, of having to accept. And I think, you know, we both, I think maybe Stuart Lee made it easier for us in the sense that, you know, he, he told me you know, uh, when I talk to him, but we had to accept that we're not for everybody and that's a benefit and that there's nothing we can do to be for anybody. Not that we want to, but it's not even available to us as an option. Yes. Because secretly, you know, when you think about other people's success or the size of other people's success, or why can't what I say be as entertaining and as far reaching as that other motherfucker, it's, it's, there is part of your brain that does that. But then you realize like, it's never going to be. Oh, I had to put that away a long time ago. Like we've all gone through that, right? Where you start comparing yourself to your peers or how come I don't have that? You know, I, I, well, yeah, I still get that sometimes, but I'm talking specifically about. You still get that? Sure. A really? Little bit. Well, sometimes because because I see myself a certain way, right? Like, it, okay. like if I if I look at my last special, I'm like, I'm not going to get better than that. I'm not going to get better than End Times Fun or the one before it. I, I'm sure. just not. My, everything I ever worked towards is in there. Everything I've ever done to make me me is in there. All right, and they did fine. They did well. The timing of the last one was prescient and fucking weird. You know, because it was a, there was a, a prophetic element to it, but it didn't blow up. You know, didn't you know? Didn't get me an Emmy nomination. Didn't get, but it's really the best I can do. So there's part of me that thinks like, what is it? I mean, I couldn't have been more accessible. Okay, fine. Mike Pence blows Jesus at the end. I still couldn't have been more accessible. <laughs> uh, so funny. there's. Uh, there's like that's that's the thing. It's like how how is this not for everybody? Why aren't there more kids at my shows? You know what I'm saying? But so I still this is the, oh my god, this is the conversation we had 17 years ago. <laughs> Why are there not more people at my shows? How come how come I don't have an Emmy? I don't know. Day, I don't know what what is Dane Cook doing? I don't know why people like that guy. Yeah, I don't no, know why I, people uh, like that guy. Okay, okay, all right. Wait, the, but the the truth is, is I know I have a tremendous, beautiful fan base. I know yes. I can. I sell out uh, you know, the places I go to. I and I know all that. You're a top and, 100 American comic all time, without question. Good. Yeah. No, I I agree. I agree. I no, so like in the sense that I I get it. Sometimes it's not real. But you don't want to know think, where you rank. You don't want to know where you rank in the top 100. I'd rather not. Okay. All right. But, but, um, because <laughs> I don't know who makes those lists. 
some kid I, I, in an I, office I, at Rolling Stone? No, I was I was talking about an imaginary one in my head, but all right. All right. <laughs> I'm just. I'm glad I made the cut. So like, yeah. it, it could have been oh, top. Yeah. It, top twenty would have been nice. A hundred, sure. I okay. Well, thanks. Uh, well, humility. So, yeah, but um, but 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 what I'm saying is that there's a, about about self ownership and about knowing that like it's okay. You know, once you find your your place and you find your people and you find your voice. You yes. know, it's a very comforting thing. And then to accept that, like, it isn't for everybody and that's okay. And to sort of make fun of that, which I do as well, is 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 great. And and to sort of have the power to sort of make people look at things differently, which is really why I got into comedy, which is what comics did for me, which is yes. they would frame things in a way that I would understand and also to, you know, make me think about things differently. And we can do all that. And the fact that you were able to figure out how to do it you know, around politics without seeming too strident, which I think you had to work through, or to anger that you had to work through and balance it with mango jokes. You know, you know, it takes time to do that. Well, to be fair, that mango joke's all also about colonialism. No, I know. I mean, I think a lot. I mean, I, I'll say that I'm the all those things are, and I appreciate that. Thank you. But I feel like my my goal is still. I still think about you on a Tuesday night at the comedy cellar. <laughs> dying (laughs) and talking about things like you know i remember like to me like you like oh this is what prior did like this is what you're supposed to do i've never completely gotten there i've never shared the stuff that hurts the most i've never i haven't when you when you think about that in in particular when you say that you seem to know what that is what is that what is the area of that in you depression anxiety oh like man fuck i didn't like I didn't expect to be alive five years ago. Like I wanted because, to be done. Uh, like uh, this is not, you know, that's why like the idea of like, I'm happy, I'm happy and tired because I have a kid and I'm still around. But like for me, it's funny because I'm saying like, <laughs> at one hand I'm saying like, I would love to talk about this stuff on stage and I'm saying it to you. So I guess it's already kind of happening right now. But like, um, you know, th- to be able to share that, like what it feels like to, not want to be alive, to be depressed, to be anxious, to have panic attack after panic attack after panic attack in a hotel room in Australia at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I had and that. What you had? What the, you went I, to I the Melbourne sent, Comedy I, Festival? No, I got sent, I got sent home from Australia. Australia was your Australia too. Like you had to no, say, but it was way before the Melbourne Comedy Festival. It was just oh. like I just I bombed so badly at a on a five week run that they sent me home after the first week. You got to listen to me tell that story at some point. But okay, so what was your panic attack about in Australia? It was I don't know, man. It was everything. Everything was terrible. Yeah, certainly. Like it's a mix of what am I doing with my life? And, yeah. uh, I I'm, I'm sick. Why am I on the road constantly? And I'm alone and I'm depressed. And this, this, this sucks. What the fuck am I doing with my life? And I'm, I'm in this, uh, you know, I'm in this room. They put you in the same room. You're there for two weeks. And, uh, for the, oh, for were you doing a one person show? I was doing the head, that headliners thing. And it was, it was with Wyatt Senac, Mike Kaplan and Cristela Alonzo. And so like two I, depressed guys, a math guy, and the other guy. <laughs> well, the thing is like I 
<laughs> like I had to go on set. I'm pretending like I, I wasn't feeling well. Like just I was sick, generally speaking, in addition to being depressed out of my mind. But I'm pretending that everything's okay. Hey, what'd you do today? Oh, I just went around and saw stuff. And I'm like, no, I was in bed having panic attacks and being tired and passing out and then waking up. And I'm like, oh, where did I leave off? Oh, yeah. And then another panic attack. Like that that's what i that was what australia was to me and then probably drinking too much good coffee which doesn't help the anxiety so no i mean at a certain point i ended up like canceling six months of shows telling my reps that i i just wasn't feeling great yeah i was just i just feel kind of sick you know but meanwhile i'm like i don't know if i want to do this anymore what do you what do you think it was was it was it fear i mean was it like do you think it's clinical depression because was it just like an anxiety I had been depressed for years and, mm. you know, definitely refusing to, to medicate in any right. way because fuck that. Plus, you know, I think a lot of South Asian cultures, um, the idea of, you know, sharing your personal life with someone else is very taboo. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's right, not something. Right, yeah, I get it. I get it. You got to keep a, you got to keep it to yourself because we're trying to make it here. Right. Exactly. This is yeah. this is for this is us. And so that's yeah. you know, you don't and plus you don't let outsiders know your shit. Right. Uh, and to break through that, to accept therapy to begin with, then medication just felt like a weakness. Right. And and, you know, I, I'm a homebody that chose a really weird job for a homebody. Like I'm Solitary. a well-traveled homebody. Yeah. And I'm, so that's anxiety. Yeah. It's anxiety. It's being alone. It's like, what value am I adding to the world? Uh, it's, you know, stuff at home that I don't want to get into, but it's like a lot of that that's building and uh, it was not, it was not good. You know, it's funny. I, I was talking to Kamau Bell the other day and W. Kamau Bell is, is one of my best friends. He's a mentor. He's a brother. Like he's like, yeah. he's, uh, I, I owe him so much as a, as a friend, but you know, I was talking to him about this the other day, and he had no idea any of this happened five years ago. And I just assumed I had told him. But, like, it was one of those things where, like, you know, I think about my life in terms of five years ago. Everything is really five years ago. Like, when people talk about this documentary, about this Apu documentary, to me, it's like it was a pop documentary that, for me, was like a side project that I thought was interesting that turned into this whole global thing where people in Brazil are sending me death threats in Portuguese, like, you know, when to me- When was this? The, when was that? When did you make that? Uh, the thing came out, I think, in 2018, the Apu doc. And, like, to me, the Apu doc, the thing that I'm proud of is the fact that that was one of the first things I wrote a pitch for after I came out of where I was. Like, it was one of the first things, that, you know, that I actually decided to make. Like I'm, I, Like, I kept going, you know? Like- that and that and my second record, I'm like, this came out of a bad period. To me, everything from this point on is fucking gravy. Like, um, so I you feel- made it through that. So, so when I asked you originally, what got us here is like, you know, that you feel like you need to, you, you that you don't address that on stage. Well, you know, maybe you don't need to. I feel like being able to address. As, as both as a human being, but also as a performer, being able to address the most difficult things and turn that into art. Yeah. That's what the great performers do. And I feel like people who like my standup, they know who I am through what I am saying and through what I believe, but they have no sense of any of that. Okay, like, well, they have no well, sense of the context that creates right. those feelings. Right. Well, so I, well, my suggestion is I, I would definitely punch it up a little bit. You don't think the, uh, <laughs> 
You don't think then you think the suicide would have been the bigger punchline, right? If I if I had done it, that would have been the bigger. No, no, no. I'm just saying that like that would. I think that, w- that the intensity with which you were explaining it. You know, it, it, this you know <laughs> the, this feels like when I first talked to you. <laughs> that because was the that was the energy that you had when I first talked to you at the cellar. It's so funny. I'm sorry. What's you the name of that? that? What's the name of that clown that everyone talks about? The the one pa- Pagliacci. Yeah. Sad clown. Yeah. Yeah, that's who we are. Yeah. That's funny though because I don't. I can't. You know, I can't see it. I can't see it in you anymore. So maybe like I don't. I don't see it. Like see you know, what? I, the anxiety, the, de- the depression. Not anxiety's anxiety. I, I feel like I'm in a. I feel like I'm in a very different place than I was. I think I put a lot of work in, and I don't think I understood. Uh, the work I put in. I also don't, th- I, I don't think I understood the impact I was having on other people. The, you know, I don't think I was, un- I understood and I, I'm still working on like the selfish choices I made and things, you know, when you're depressed, when you're miserable, y- you know, yeah. you're dragging everybody, when you're drowning, you're dragging everyone down with you to keep yourself up. And I was doing that. Like I, I feel terrible about it. I know that the version of me that did it isn't the me that's talking to you now, but like, you know, to me, like, you know, it's funny, like, hearing people talk about, ah, that's the guy that will, wants to kill the cartoon character. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck about well, that. But, yeah, but what, but like, see, like, <laughs> I, I, I didn't really know about all this. So, so, and after the, this is after you got through the depression, you made the, the Apu doc, which is basically an argument, you know, uh, founded in, you know, the, the stereotype that sort of, because uh, uh, South Asians were so uh, not represented culturally in America, that Apu became this sort of this this identifier for almost all white Americans. Of- it's a few things. One, it's that it's the idea of this is how a stereotype carries. How this yeah. particular stereotype was grandfathered in because The Simpsons is the show that's lasted right. long that anyone could have expected. The impact a stereotype has. Also, it's a singular example which is useful to look at minstrelsy in general, how right. it's worked historically. Sure. You know, we got Whoopi Goldberg to talk about the history of black minstrelsy and kind right. of kind of the the legacy of that, uh, the impact that has. But but ultimately, the the, the journey was to. For somebody to take fucking responsibility for Apu and what it put you and your Indian compatriots through as a stereotype, I think that's. I think that was the way to to sell the documentary. I mean, I right. think the documentary I wanted to make had no voiceover and was just edits between interviews. But I was doing it for True TV, and we had to account for commercial breaks. But so, it also. You know, but I thought it was very effective and provocative, and you talked to a lot of the right people. And I thought that the lessons about you know you, you know non people not being represented culturally is a big it's everything it's a very good 101 and i think okay. what's what's hard is that if you're somebody who knows this stuff like for brown people for people who it's like this is old man this is like yeah. shit so for me it was like i know the only thing that was really interesting in it was to be able to talk to other brown people you know and also be able to talk about like such a jithray and the history of the the apu trilogy i know like, i want to go see that those movies again i only that, saw the that, first one I'll, I'll but i mean that to me is like the film it, like i made a short film in 2006 called minoj that covered the stuff that's in that documentary in 12 minutes and to me the documentary is saying more than showing and but I, only- what I, I guess what i didn't understand or what i didn't know about was the um 
the the backlash you know that i thought like here's i'm such a fucking dumb idealist progressive person or or open-minded enough to think like well well hank you know he's not going to do the voice anymore they might not have the character anymore you know victory uh you know we move on but i didn't realize that there was a global movement against you for for ruining the simpsons and for pe- people who didn't even see the documentary, because the documentary was only available in the U.S. for more than a year. So people are reading what they think it's about from different articles. You know, it's still not available in South America. Like, yeah. I don't know why all these death threats in Spanish showed up, but that's the way. Because at a certain point, it's a template, right? It's not, it's not actually about what the argument is. It's the idea of anybody questioning something becoming this politically correct you know, crusade to destroy everything we love versus, no, I'm a Simpsons fan. I'm talking about the complications of art and how art and and, and culture interact. That's what this thing's about. It's not about hating a thing or not. And what I wanted, you know, I was hoping for a nuanced argument about representation. And instead I got like nonsense. Like the idea of making a movie about a cartoon and then having extra security it shows is fucking absurd. Right. And then having to tell like the... The security guards, why did they hire me? It's like, because I made a cartoon movie and people like the cartoon. It sounds fucking ridiculous. You did. You had to do that? You had to hire extra security? Yeah, it's like you want that if you're saying Lenny Bruce type shit. You don't want that when you're talking about the, the cartoon bothers me. Like, who wants that? Like, it's it's stupid. There was credible death threats, you think, against you? Who know? I don't know what credible means. I know yeah. that it was enough where people are sending things to like schools or venues so you have to like get security oh my god so you had to deal with that and it's stupid for again something that was a a a nice side project that i thought would be fun to do on true tv you just gotten through your depression and now this yeah which uh, honestly (laughs) it was a there was a part of me like you're trying to kill me like i just (laughs) two years ago this would have been perfect (laughs) there's your joke there's the punchline you were yeah. you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> Where were you two years ago? <laughs> I just wanted to start living two years ago. It's not now. <sighs> I just had my epiphany. Yeah. So you got <laughs> But so but all in all, Frank Hank Azaria never talked to you? No, but you know, I I've heard that he's done a lot of his own work on, on race and he's like read a lot and he studied a lot and he's done his own. And to me, that's kind of what I was hoping other people would do. I just wanted this to be a spark point. I thought for having this conversation and it looks like the only person that had it was Hank, which is like <laughs> a fucking bummer. Well, if the, if the movie is honest, it seemed like that's what you were gunning for. <laughs> I was trying to get a larger fucking conversation and pour like I, I, I appreciate that guy for actually, I mean, I get why he didn't speak at the time and I'm, you know, I was annoyed at the time, but the fact this dude did the work, that's what you hope like people with any sort of privilege do. I think it did do that. I think a lot of things are happening, even in the shadow of this dismantling of our, our government that may or may not take is that there have been a lot of proactive, uh, events and movements going on that that clearly are having an impact i think to to Hmm. to to deny that that thing was provocative i mean i watched it and was i was provocative to me and you know and i'm I'm a fairly 
you know, like I, I'm old and I'm, I'm, but I obviously it, it would resonate with me, but it, it definitely got in there and I learned a few new things. And so I, I don't think you should discredit in any way just because but, a bunch of fucking monsters, you know, came at you. But yeah, but also keep in mind, like as a stand up, what do you want? What do you want people to see? You want them to see your stand up? Yeah, I know, but dude, I, you know, I, you know, what made me famous was a goddamn podcast. So I was going to shows and I had my, my 2000 listeners, you know, saying to each other on comment boards, we should go support Mark. I'm like, what do you mean support? I've been doing stand up t- 25 years. I need an audience. I don't need fucking a support group. And then when, <laughs> then people, <laughs> then people would be like, I really like your stuff. And I'd be like, well, what do you like? Like people would come up to me after the show. <laughs> Don't fucking tell me about what you want to be I really known for. Like your, I really like your stuff. I'm doing this over two decades. <laughs> I didn't know why they knew me. Why did you know me? It took me years to integrate the two to where they became one thing and it didn't matter. <laughs> like there are still people that see me on Glow and they don't know that I do anything else. But it's when they crazy, see- dude. But they're going to want to do your, like, they're going to come to your stand-up. If we ever have stand-up again, like, they're going to come to the gigs, obviously. I mean, no, that's, I, that's, that's fine. I get it. But they're all surprised. Like, I just know you from Glow. I never knew you did this. I'm like, how could you not know? I've been doing, I've been pounding my head against the wall for 30 <laughs> fucking years. I've done 50 Conan O'Briens. I've been performing in nondescript basements for 30 <laughs> years. How are you not? Why isn't everybody in the loop? I'm on Twitter. Do you have Twitter? (laughs) But the way to look at that, Hari, from a guy Uh who's uh, put it into perspective is see yourself as always discoverable. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. I am Googleable. No, but I mean, literally, people can find your shit and be like, who's this guy? Right. Let's go check him out. Right. But you're okay now? What'd you do? Did you take medicine or you didn't? I'm great. No. No, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I've been good. I think the last five years, you know, it, it's always up and down, but it's it's not living in the down. And it's the idea that, you know how when you're really depressed, it's the same day for years. It's just the same day. Like being able to wake up in the next day being the next day is remarkable. Oh, because your perception is fucked. Yeah, I, uh, I, 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 in retrospect, don't believe I ever had actual depression. I think I suffer from... Uh, paralyzing anxiety, future thinking, and I get to a point of dread that cre- co- causes a, a, ki- a type of paralysis that feels like depression, but it's actually at its core anxiety. So if I treat it as such and I and I can get back into the present and, and sort of reconfigure how I'm approaching the day, I have some success at that. Where, whereas I think depression is paralyzing no matter what you do. Hmm. That the level of dread I can experience and also the level of a lot of times it has to do with me not necessarily doing what I need to do to feel better or like, you know, this, there's this, I think there's a thing of like, if I could, like, I think, and I don't think it's a South Asian thing, but I think it's, I think you and I are very hard on ourselves and that the expectations we have on ourselves are sort of hard to meet, uh, if not impossible. So when you set that, right. when you set that up for yourself, you're only in the state of self-punishment and eventually that's going to become exhausting and you're going to disappoint yourself and fall into a hole somehow. So I, I think that's true. I think there's a great deal of self-flagellation and, and that just is exhausting after a yeah, while. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually, you know, you just have, it, it has to do with, you know, you know, faulty self-parenting, you know, you know, expectations that were unmet or, or whatever you're projecting uh, to it's a, it's a, 
it's a deep wiring thing. But I think what I'm saying now is that I think your success and maybe the baby, but also that, you know, your your comedy coming like a lot of these things that 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 we didn't have self-esteem before. But you do stuff where you kind of can't deny it after a certain point. Where you're like, I feel better. You know, like, why do I feel better about myself? Because you've done some amazing shit. Yeah. (laughs) You can't even take it? You can't even take that? I think part of it, you know, in in this... Right now, as you say this, I am 20 again. And I'm just kind of taking it in like, "Ah, Mark thinks I've done some good stuff. That's nice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> can't wow. Hari think he did some good stuff can't we get Hari to did, think did he you did... like the special was the, spe- the special was funny right yeah that it was, was good it was good it was you, good you, right you, yeah, yeah it was tight yeah. it was good it was funny yeah. everything yeah. landed you, yeah could, it did land yeah i could see you put the work in you wrote the, the good in. jokes you yeah. ran that shit for at least a year some of it that's correct that's absolute <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you did good man Thanks. So what's this podcast? So W. Kamau Bell and I uh, have a podcast called Politically Reactive that we did uh, before the last election and continued a year into the Trump presidency. And then we stopped doing it and uh, we just kept getting emails and tweets and people after shows coming up and saying, hey, when are you bringing the podcast back? And it's like, it's been three years. I don't think we're bringing it back. Um, And... We decided, you know, between COVID and uh, the demand for it, that it was time to bring it back. You know, it, it's definitely it's it's a political podcast, but more than that, it's a it's an activist podcast. I mean, we certainly, you know, we don't have politicians on as much as we have people that are working on the ground who are organizers, academics. Um, you know, what's cool about it is that we can talk about something like gerrymandering, which we did in I think one of the first seasons, and that can be used in like college classes and yeah. high school classes, which yeah. wasn't the intention. Or we could just be like, you know, goofing around like, you know, we did with like Hassan Minaj or, you know, Asif Manvi. We're having uh, Alana Glazer on soon. Like, you know, the cool thing about the podcast is that we're able to be to be light, be be ourselves. I mean, we're great friends, so that definitely lubricates the thing um and still be able to talk about stuff that maybe would have been seen as wonky otherwise and it's forward moving like it's not really this isn't a what do the republicans think address both sides no it's a podcast with a very clear agenda to it and a, right and, a very and also like at this, at this point you know people need to you know people are isolated and they feel alone they feel crazy and you know those you know your voices and your uh, ability to see things, the two of you, and be uh, be light, be heavy, you know, kind of run the gamut of emotions, be funny. It's very helpful to people who are who are who are, who are not able to get out much anymore. Also, I mean, I think it's a very good friendship, and I think that's really what drives it too. It's like these two friends who care about like the same things, who are both comedians, who have this incredible dynamic. Um, and who are very inquisitive and very thoughtful. I mean, I think that's part of what drives it. Good. And also, I mean, Kamau and I used to be on the phone and, and we'd have these amazing calls. I'm like, this should be a podcast. Yeah. And that's kind of what we want this thing to be. We want that except with a bunch of brilliant people also teaching us stuff. Great. I Well, okay. I'm, I'm excited that you got it back up. And, uh, you know, and I look forward to the uh, the new hour about depression and anxiety. Thanks. Maybe you had to Thanks. Get I got to work uh, on that. I'm glad that we did some workshopping today. Uh, I, I haven't been on stage in a long time, so that that was 
That was good. That was yeah, good. Yeah, you, you tagged it, man. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Real good tag out of that. Thanks. Th- thanks, Mark. Uh, one quick thing. I just want to yeah. say uh, that I love my father very much, and the man worked very hard, and uh, in case he's listening to this, and he will be, Dad, I love you. You're a good dad. You're going to be a great grandfather, and uh, I just want you to know that. Nice. That's all. Yeah. You might want to maybe call him, too, give him a heads up. <laughs> mom i don't mom you're a very strong person i don't want to make it sound like you were purely a victim of fate that didn't have your own autonomy uh you absolutely do have your own autonomy uh but i do think the weepy immigrant story sells better mom and you know that good so i'm glad you got me maybe I'll, I'll do that uh with my parents if i can figure out some nice things to say <laughs> do you like the cop-out deconstruction at the end of this interview no, I think it's a great closer, and I think yeah. that's how you're going to close your anxiety depression show. Do you think Stuart Lee will like it? Because ultimately, that's what this is about. Um, I think he'll like it if you you're going to have to pace it a little slower and more deliberately. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, buddy. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, it's great to see you. Take care, man. All right, that was Hari again. The uh, podcast, Politically Reactive, with uh, Hari and W. Kamal Bell. You can get that. uh, It's back. You can get that where you get podcasts. A special on Netflix, Warn Your Relatives, is up. And his documentary, The Problem with Apu, is now on HBO Max. Now enjoy the uh, failed butter cake blues. Monkey La Fonda. Live.